Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. I'm Lee Madame McLaughlin. And I'm William Ray. In this episode, we're going to talk about a shift in Kiwi identity. Up until this point in history, most Pākehā thought of themselves as British. They might be living on the other side of the world, but their identity was still closely linked to the mother country. In the years following the Second World War, that all changed. Pākehā stopped seeing themselves as British or European and started seeing themselves as New Zealanders. But there was also a lot of conflict in this era of New Zealand history. There were huge strikes and moral panics about rowdy teenagers. And for the first time, Māori and Pākehā started living side by side. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. There was a huge boom in birth rates after the Second World War. That's why we call the people born in those years the baby boomers. Presumably people were thinking, the fighting's over, the global economy's bounced back. And now, it's business time. Wow, chicka, wow, wow. New Zealand had one of the biggest baby booms in the developed world. By 1960, the average Māori woman had seven children, and the average Pākehā woman had four. And the Second World War coincided with another big demographic change. It was the beginning of Māori urbanisation. Before the war, the vast majority of Māori lived rurally, usually on their ancestral lands. But the war shook things up. In the 1940s, you saw many Māori forced to move into the cities to work in factories. This was part of those manpower regulations we talked about last episode. After the war ended, the urban economy grew rapidly and the demand for workers grew too, so lots more Māori were drawn into the cities. In just 50 years, the Māori population changed from 83% rural to 83% urban. That's one of the fastest rates of urbanisation ever seen in world history. This transition from rural to urban life has been complicated for many Māori people. Māori who moved to cities often lost their connections to their wider wānau back home. But the immediate challenge Māori faced as they moved into towns and cities was racism. Ever since colonisation began, Pākehā authorities had talked about the need to assimilate or integrate Māori into European society. But Māori quickly realised that while Pākehā politicians had talked a lot about racial integration, New Zealand was highly segregated. 
this wasn't the same kind of embedded and legally enforced segregation you saw in like the USA or South Africa, but a more informal kind of racism. Many bars refused to serve drinks to Māori. Some hotels and rental properties were advertised for Europeans only. Cinemas and swimming pools often separated Māori from white customers. Prejudice was a run-of-the-mill reality in the 1950s all over the world, and New Zealand was no different. For the most part, it was seen as totally acceptable to disparage people based on race. This was particularly difficult for Māori, who were obviously living in their own country, but it also affected many non-European migrants, Chinese people, Indian families, Dalmatians, the Irish, Pacific Islanders, basically anyone who wasn't British. Race relations weren't the only tensions in post-war New Zealand. Many people were also getting a bit worried that the whole world was about to explode. This all went back to Sir Ernest Rutherford, the famous Kiwi physicist who split the atom back in 1918. He named the proton and won a Nobel Prize and is considered one of the greatest scientists of all time. But his research was also a big step towards the invention of the atomic bomb. By the late 1940s, the Soviet Union and the United States both had nuclear weapons and were locked in an arms race, making increasingly powerful bombs. It was the beginning of the Cold War. In 1951, Australia and New Zealand officially allied themselves with the USA through the ANZUS Treaty. We'd already sent troops and naval vessels to fight in the Korean War, and later on we became involved in other Cold War conflicts like the Malayan Emergency and the Vietnam War. By now, the government had changed hands. In 1936, the old Conservative parties of Reform and United combined to form the New Zealand National Party, In 1949, they won their first election. National, and indeed future governments, were deeply concerned about Soviet influence in Aotearoa, and they weren't the only ones. The entire Western world was wound up about communist spies and saboteurs. In New Zealand, anxiety about communism was focused on parts of the union movement, particularly the Waterside Workers' Union, which represented warfies, These were men who unloaded and loaded ships at New Zealand's ports. This union ended up locking horns with the national government in Aotearoa's biggest ever industrial action, the 1951 waterfront dispute. The fight got started with an argument over pay between the owners of the big British shipping companies and the New Zealand wharfies. Even today, there are arguments over whether the dispute was started by the wharfies refusing to work overtime or if it was the shipping companies locking the workers out. Either way, the ports were in chaos. International trade ground to a halt and the government reacted furiously. National Party politicians described the union's leaders as communist agitators and claimed the strike was part of a Soviet plot to undermine New Zealand's economy. Was that true? Well, it depends who you ask. Some members of the Watersiders Union were also members of the New Zealand Communist Party, and that party did have links to the Soviet Union. But most of the union's members were just ordinary workers who wanted better pay and conditions. The government responded to the crisis by declaring an emergency and sending in troops to take over the job of loading and unloading ships. Next, they cracked down on the Watersiders Union. 
censorship laws were passed banning any communications about strike actions. The police were given sweeping powers to arrest and search people. It was illegal for any citizen to help a worker who was on strike. You couldn't even give food to their kids. The Watersiders Union was furious. Their members referred to national MPs as fascists and Nazis. 22,000 unionists across the country went on strike in solidarity with the Wharfies. But the vast majority of workers did not join the strike, and the wider union movement had its own concerns about the Watersiders Union. The Federation of Labour accused the Watersiders' leaders of being part of a campaign of communist imperialism to weaken every free democratic nation. The Labour Party sat on the fence. It denounced National's more radical policies, but also refused to endorse the Watersiders' union. After 151 days of striking and protest, the Watersiders finally accepted defeat. It's estimated that industrial action had cost the country up to £150 million. That's more than $9 billion in today's money. The political impact was just as big as the economic effect. Labour's indecisiveness weakened its support with both sides of the conflict. Meanwhile, National positioned itself as the party of stability. It said its harsh laws were specifically targeting militant communists, not ordinary workers. Towards the end of the strike, they called a snap election and won a major victory. This 1949 election marked a turning point for conservative politics in New Zealand. National won 10 out of the 12 elections between 1949 and 1981. But while voting-age Kiwis were swinging towards conservatism, their kids were getting more and more liberal. By the end of the 1950s, the first of the baby boomers were reaching their teens, and this was a very different kind of teenager than New Zealand had seen before. These teens were styling their hair like Elvis and wearing fancy suits. They were pashing in the back rows of cinemas and hanging out in milk bars. What is a milk bar? I've looked at some photos. It seems like a bar which only serves milkshakes, and that sounds fantastic. Milk bars! This stuff seems pretty tame by today's standards, but at the fringes, some young people really were pushing the boundaries. A handful of young Kiwis joined motorcycle gangs, and they sometimes got involved in serious crime. Later on in the 1970s, street gangs like the Mongrel Mob and Black Power and a handful of neo-Nazi groups also attracted disaffected young Kiwis. The 1950s also saw church attendance start to fall for the first time in New Zealand history, which made a lot of traditionalist Kiwis very worried. So in 1954, the government reacted to all this by releasing the Mazengarb Report. This report claimed there was a widespread rise in teen immorality, and it put the blame on everything from crime novels to contraceptives. The Mazengarb report was sent to every home in New Zealand. The government followed up by outlawing contraceptives for people under 16. Even talking to under 16s about contraceptives was illegal. The government doubled down on censoring films and books that dealt with sex and crime. It was a full-blown moral panic. 
But this move towards a more liberal culture was not going away. As New Zealand entered the 60s and 70s, it got even stronger. In the meantime, questions about culture in the mid-20th century weren't just about rowdy teenagers. There were also deeper questions about Kiwi identity. Up until this point in our history, Pākehā identity was deeply tied to British heritage. This connection was so deep that the government repeatedly turned down offers from the United Kingdom to give us more independence. New Zealand only accepted full sovereignty in 1947 when it signed the Statute of Westminster. But amidst the conservatism and cultural cringe, new shoots of independence and identity were blooming. In 1949, the first wholly New Zealand-produced record, Blue Smoke, was released. And through the 50s, writers such as Frank Sargison and a young Janet Frame started to find a distinctly New Zealand voice, as did poets such as Alan Curnow and the playwright Bruce Mason. Radio produced homegrown stars such as Aunt Daisy and it's in the bags of Selwyn Toogood, while artists such as Colin McCann and Gordon Walters drew inspiration from both Māori and European traditions. Our sense of nationhood was also driven through sporting success, and in 1964 we had what's sometimes been called our greatest sporting moment, when Peter Snell and Murray Halberg won two Olympic gold medals within half an hour of each other. But probably the biggest moment for New Zealand national pride came in 1953. I'm able to announce that a news flash has just come through advising us that the New Zealander, Hillary, has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. After Edmund Hillary reached the summit of Mount Everest with Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, he soon came to personify the emerging humble, independent, can-do Kiwi culture. Our sense of self was slowly starting to change. A classic example was Keith Holyoke, who served as Prime Minister between 1960 and 1972. Holyoke's family had been in Aotearoa for more than 100 years, and he refused to call himself British. His nickname was literally Kiwi Keith. A big part of what drove this cultural shift away from Great Britain was economics. On December 14, 1966, the auction price for coarse wool in UK markets collapsed by 40% overnight. The so-called wool shock cut our total export revenue by 16%. Plus, there were growing fears that the UK's move to join the European Economic Community would permanently reduce our access to British markets. It was a case of diversify or die. Britain joined the European Common Market in 1973, and by the end of the 70s, the proportion of our exports going to Britain had fallen from more than 50% to less than 15%. For the first time, we'd been forced to become economically independent from Britain, and we also became more culturally distinct. New Zealand comedians and artists and authors became more celebrated, and Pākehā adopted new symbols of Kiwi culture. The silver fern, jandals, pavlova, all that stuff we call Kiwiana. We stayed part of the Commonwealth, and the Queen was still our head of state, but we stopped seeing ourselves as an outpost of the British Empire. Now we were an independent Pacific nation.
Okay, speaking of independent Pacific nations, let's take a quick detour to chat about Samoa. New Zealand took control of Western Samoa from Germany at the beginning of the First World War, but New Zealand authorities didn't leave after the war ended. Instead, Western Samoa effectively became a New Zealand colony. Most Samoans were not on board with this idea, especially after New Zealand's horrific mishandling of the 1918 flu epidemic, which killed at least 20% of the Samoan population. In the aftermath of that epidemic, you saw the rise of the Mao movement, which lobbied for Samoan independence. They boycotted imported products and refused to pay taxes. New Zealand authorities jailed hundreds of Mao members, and in 1929, New Zealand police opened fire on a Mao protest march, killing 11 Samoans, including the movement's leader. The Mao fled into the mountains, pursued by 150 marines and sailors from HMS Dunedin, plus another 50 or so armed police. And here's how the leader of those troops talked about Samoans. At the present moment, the Samoan people are in the position of a sulky and insubordinate child who has deliberately disobeyed his father, and no peaceful persuasion will induce him to submit. There is no alternative, therefore, but to treat him roughly. After the Second World War, the newly formed United Nations pushed for colonies like Samoa to become independent states. And Western Samoa finally became independent on January 1st, 1962. Around that time, a lot of Samoans and other Pacific people were emigrating to Aotearoa. Overseas workers were desperately needed to relieve labour shortages through the boom years of the 50s and 60s. But when the economy started to slide downwards in the 1970s, the government cracked down on Pacific immigrants. Police launched dawn raids on people's homes and stopped Pacific people at random in the street asking to see their papers. A later study showed that 86% of people prosecuted for overstaying their visas were Pacific Islanders, even though they made up only about a third of the total number of overstayers. There were big protests about the dawn raids. A group called the Polynesian Panthers rallied the community to oppose racist treatment of Pacific immigrants. Māori people set up their own activist groups like Ngā Tamatua to lobby for Māori interests. One of its leaders was Hone Harawira, later an MP. He said Māori and Pacific Island activists often work together. A number of Māori got picked up in the dawn raids and chucked into jail. Even though it was obvious from the way they were talking they weren't fresh off the boat from anywhere except maybe from Taranaki. Ngā Tamatoa was involved in supporting that issue that was very much led by the Panthers. And the Panthers supported a lot of the things Ngā Tamatoa was trying to do in terms of Māori rights, treaty rights and te reo. Māori activist groups were part of what's become known as the Māori Renaissance, a revival of Māori art and culture. In the 70s, we see the foundation of Te Matatini, the nationwide kapahaka competition which is still running today. Witi Ihimaira became the first published Māori novelist, and Hone Tupare won multiple awards for his poetry. In 1982, the first Kohanga Reo was founded, a sort of Māori-language preschool. And in 1987, Te Reo was finally acknowledged as an official language of Aotearoa. There was also a renewed focus on retaining and reclaiming Māori land. In 1975, 80-year-old Wina Cooper led a huge hikoi from the far north to protest ongoing efforts by the government to buy Māori land. 
We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. A photo of Cooper, hand in hand with her granddaughter, walking away from the camera on a dusty Northland road, became an iconic image of Māori determination to demand a better future. A couple of years later, members of Ngāti Whātua and their supporters occupied ancestral land at Bastion Point for 506 days to stop it being sold to a housing developer. They were eventually forced out by 600 police. But these protests also created divisions among Māori. Some Kaumatua and Kuia thought rowdy protesters were hurting the reputation of Māori. They were keen on a more incremental approach to change. But the protests turned out to be very effective. They got a lot of media attention. And for many Pākehā, this was the first time they realised many Māori were seriously unhappy about colonisation. Up until this point in our history, most white New Zealanders had been happy to say Aotearoa had the best race relations in the world. Now, some of them were starting to see a different side to that story, and increasing numbers started to support Māori and call for the government to honour the treaty. Meanwhile, Māori MPs were working within Norman Kirk's Labour government to push for change. On October 10th, as Wena Cooper's Māori land march was approaching Wellington, the government passed what's become one of the most important laws in New Zealand history, the Treaty of Waitangi Act. This act set up the Waitangi Tribunal, a permanent commission of inquiry which could investigate breaches of the treaty and recommend how to fix them. At first, the tribunal could only investigate breaches which happened after 1975. But after a decade's worth of hikoi, hui and petitions, in 1985, the government expanded the tribunal's power. Now it had the authority to investigate breaches of the treaty all the way back to the document signing in 1840. Over the past 30 years or so, the tribunal has investigated more than a thousand treaty claims. The government has acknowledged what the Crown did wrong, issued apologies, returned tracts of land and made compensation payments. Although we should say those payments only ever account for what's roughly estimated as 2 to 4% of the actual value of what was lost. The Māori land movement was one of many protest causes in the 1970s. In the next episode, we're going to look at the other issues which were driving Kiwis to raise their voices and take to the streets. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.